0: What a great day. Now I can just pronounce the benediction and <laughs> off you go. I do have a message for you, and, uh, but I promise I'll have you out before the opening kickoff, okay? So we're in uh, John's gospel these days, uh, and we're in chapter 18 this week. And so I would encourage you to open to John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, Couple guys coming down the aisle right now with Bibles. Just catch their eye and they'd be glad to give you one. And uh, you can turn to page 754 in that Bible to find the passage we are dealing with John chapter 18, verses 12 to 27. It's really good to have one open in front of you so you can kind of see what's going on in the narrative. As I uh, prepared this message this week and and just read this passage over and over, it struck me how much like a drama this passage lays out as. Uh, There is action, there is suspense, there are scenes shifting from one to another and back again. Uh, And so I want to invite you to use your imagination with me this morning And picture the whole thing being acted out here on this platform in front of you. The first part that we come to is what I would call the prologue, and uh, it takes place in front of the curtain. So picture the curtain here, and in front of the curtain, we have this scene showing up before us that we read about in verses 12 to 14. So follow along as I read verses 12 to 14. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So this... Prologue in front of the curtain takes place just after the action we looked at last week in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was there with his disciples and Judas came with a detachment of soldiers and a number of people from the high priest's court. The lights come up on this scene to reveal. Sort of a scene frozen in time. Nobody's moving. The actors are there, but they're not moving. And we see that they have just arrested Jesus. They have bound him with ropes. And they're about to take him to an illegal midnight trial at the home of the high priest. Jesus offers no resistance, but we know that he is no helpless victim. He's already shown us just a glimpse of his glory and power in that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, I am, and the soldiers fell down. We see them about to take Jesus off the stage. There's a narrator on the stage, and he tells us that they will cross the Kidron Valley and they'll go over the brook that will soon flow red with the blood of more than 200,000 Passover lambs. They'll bring Jesus to Annas, who isn't exactly the high priest that year, but who served as high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD when he was deposed by a Roman official named Gratus. And when Annas was deposed, his son, Eleazar, took over as high priest. And after Eleazar, his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And then after Caiaphas, there would be four more sons of Annas in succession serving as high priest. But high priest was supposed to serve for a lifetime. So even though Rome had deposed Annas the Jews still recognized him as the real high priest. So the dynasty continues. Annas remains the power behind the priesthood. This is the one that they will bring Jesus to. And when Annas is done with Jesus, he will hand him over to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is officially the high priest, Annas knows that if he's going to get the thing that he wants from the Romans, that is a crucifixion, he's got to have the current high priest as president of the Sanhedrin sign off on it. But that president of the Sanhedrin is his son-in-law. And so he knows that's going to be an easy sign-off to get. There's a little foreshadowing in verse 14. It tells us that Caiaphas is the one who said it would be better for Jesus to die than for the nation to be threatened. And that that thing that he said happened back in chapter 11. We looked at it several weeks ago. It was after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And Sanhedrin meets in chapter 11 out of concern for Jesus' rising popularity, and they're wondering what to do about it. If his popularity continues to increase, they reason the Romans are going to come down hard on them. And Caiaphas sees a simple solution. Take Jesus out. It's better that this one man die, that the whole nation be put at risk. As the drama unfolds, then, we realize that what follows is not going to be a fair trial. The verdict has already been pronounced. The stage lights go down, the actors leave the front stage in the dark, and then the curtain rises. Scene one, the courtyard, starting at verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You, weren't, you aren't one of this, this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. So the lights come up on stage left and reveal a gate with a courtyard at center stage. Stage right is dark. The soldiers with Jesus enter from stage left and they stop at the gate. It opens as soon as they arrive. People inside the courtyard have been waiting for them. As quickly as it opens for them, it closes behind them. Peter and another disciple have arrived, but only the other disciple gets to go in. Peter is left outside the gate. We may wonder who that other disciple is. Some have suggested that it's John, the author of the gospel, John never refers to himself by name, but he generally calls himself the disciple Jesus loved, not the other disciple. Think about this as well. John is a fisherman from Galilee. He wouldn't be known to the high priest. So who might that leave? Well, there's Nicodemus, who's a member of the Sanhedrin. He would be known to the high priest. He was a secret follower of Jesus. He showed up in chapter 3, coming to Jesus at night with some questions. He showed up later defending Jesus. Could be him. There's also Joseph of Arimathea, the man who loaned his tomb to Jesus. He too was a member of the Sanhedrin. Could be either one of those, but doesn't much matter at this point. The other disciple, whoever he is, goes into the courtyard, speaks to a couple of people, and then comes back to the gate. He speaks to the servant girl who's on duty. She's an employee of the high priest, and she lets Peter in after he's spoken to her. And as Peter passes, she asks him a question. You're not one of his disciples too, are you? The question is stated in such a way that it expects a negative answer. And Peter is happy to oblige. Uh Uh-uh, not me, nope. Shakes off the question with a quick no and presses past her. A small lie, Peter thinks. A small price to pay to get to where the action is. And Peter wants to be where the action is. Peter sizes up the situation in the courtyard at center stage and decides he'd better try to look as inconspicuous as he can. It's a cold night. It's a group of people standing around a charcoal fire. And if he didn't join them, he would look really conspicuous. And so he decides to try to fit in. He quietly approaches the group tries to blend in, keeps his head down, hoping his face isn't seen and identified. He thinks at least it's a charcoal fire. He wouldn't want to be standing next to a wood fire that blazes and throws light on the faces of everybody around it. So far, so good, Peter thinks. Peter uses his vantage point to try to see what's going on inside the house of Annas, the man who used to be high priest, who remains the power behind the priesthood. The lights go down on stage left. Scene two, Annas' house. Look at verses 19 to 24. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Lights now come up on stage right. They reveal not a courtroom, but a house. It's very well furnished. It's the home of Annas, the man who served as high priest for 10 years before being deposed by the Romans. And Jesus is led into a spacious receiving room. Annas has been waiting for this moment. Like a skilled trial attorney, he begins the questioning, asking Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Who are your disciples? Give me their names. No answer. What have you been teaching? What's your authority? Annas knows it's not proper to question a defendant directly. But he does it anyway. He wants to get this done and get to bed. It's after midnight already. Jesus tells him in answer that his teaching has been out in the open, in the synagogues and in the temple where any Jew could hear him. There's been nothing done in secret. His accusers could have heard it all themselves. And they probably did. He invites the high priest to talk to witnesses who've heard his teaching. There are plenty of witnesses. And his invitation to talk to them reminds the high priest that it's witnesses he should be questioning, not the defendant. And one of the staff members of the high priest takes offense at the invitation and he hits Jesus with a rebuke and a slap across his face. Literally, he gave him a blow, it says. It would be the first of many blows that Jesus would receive in the next 12 hours. Jesus appeals to the law that these Jews claim to cherish. He has only reminded them that they should be questioning witnesses and not him, and there are plenty of witnesses available if they would care to bring some in. He says, if I've said something wrong, let me know what it is. But if I have told the truth, then you shouldn't strike me. Those two words, wrong and truth, are literally evil and good. If I've said something evil, then point it out. If I've said something good, you shouldn't strike me. And what he's saying is, I am one or the other, so let's have a fair trial. And make that decision. But Annas has seen enough. The fair trial Jesus has asked for is not going to happen. It never was going to happen. But the official seal of approval needs to come from the president of the Sanhedrin. And that just happens to be Annas' son-in-law. And so with a dismissive wave, Annas has his temple guards take Jesus, still bound, across the courtyard to the home of, of the currently reigning high priest, Caiaphas. The lights go down on stage right. And they come up now on stage left once again, where we find scene three, the courtyard, verses 25 to 27. One of the high priest's servants, am I in the right place? 25 to 27. Here we go. The print is really small, and the numbers are even smaller. Here we go. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. The lights come up on Peter. We see him standing by that charcoal fire, trying to look inconspicuous, but also trying to hear what's going on inside of Annas' house. He sees Jesus being led out across the courtyard under heavy guard, and Peter weighs his options. Somebody notices that Peter has been trying to see through the window into Annas' house, trying to hear what's going on inside. And they ask the same question the servant girl asked at the gate. You're not one of this guy's disciples too, are you? Again, it's stated in such a way that it anticipates a negative answer. And so it's relatively easy for Peter to shrug off again with another quick denial. Just trying to buy some time, Peter thinks. It's no big deal. And then it happens. Somebody else at that fire looks at Peter's face, looks at his clothes, sizes him up. This man was there in the garden when Peter took out his sword and took a swipe at the servant of the high priest. And to make matters worse, This guy's a relative of that man that Peter struck with his sword. and He says, wait a minute. I recognize you. You were there in the garden with Jesus, weren't you? And this time, the question is stated in such a way that it anticipates a yes answer. It's a pretty direct accusation. And now Peter isn't just trying to buy some time. Peter is now trying to save his own skin. And so he denies it for a third time. But he can't just shrug it off this time. According to the other gospels, he accompanies this third denial with oaths, calling down judgment on himself if he's lying, just to make his lies seem more believable. And At that moment, the rooster crows. The thing that Jesus said would happen, the thing that Peter thought was unimaginable has happened. And according to the other gospel writers, Peter leaves the courtyard and weeps bitterly. And the curtain comes down. What do we do with this drama in the courtyard we need something to take home with us today and there's a lot we could look at in this narrative but let's just focus on peter for now if we were to ask peter for a lesson he took away from this experience what would he say i think he'd say that god had to break him in order to make him useful Think back to an earlier time, one when Jesus was asking his disciples who people said he was, in Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Congratulations, Peter. You got this one right. And then in that very same chapter, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples more of his mission. In verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you blew it. You're thinking earthly, fleshly, worldly thoughts. You don't see the bigger picture yet. The idea of a suffering Messiah wasn't what Peter and the rest of the disciples wanted to hear, and Peter wasn't about to let it happen. Fast forward about a year and a half to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter's there with Jesus and the other disciples when Judas arrives with the Roman soldiers and the Jewish officials. What is it Peter wants to do? What's he want to do? He wants to protect Jesus, right? He wants to defend Jesus. He doesn't want him to suffer. He still doesn't get it, despite the number of times Jesus explained to them what he came to do. So Peter draws his sword and almost gets all of them killed. Blew it again. Blew it again. But when everybody else runs, Peter stays. He follows Jesus to this illegal nighttime trial. He wants to be there for Jesus. He wants to be near the action. He wants to influence the action. He wants to offer what help he can to protect his Lord. So he gains admission to the courtyard. He tries to blend in near the fire. He's ready for action again. He's close enough to Annas's house To maybe get a glimpse of what's going on inside. Maybe hear some of the proceedings. Peter's standing there by the fire, buying time, looking for his opportunity. The first two denials were ones that he could shrug off fairly easily to avoid detection. But that third one, that third one, there's just going to be no escaping John simply tells us he denied it. But Matthew and Mark tell us more. They tell us Peter calls down curses on himself. Not profanity, but essentially putting himself under oath so they would believe his lie. And then the rooster crows. And Peter knows his hopes for saving Jesus are over. It's not going to happen The other gospel writers all tell us that Peter weeps bitterly. What's that about? I'll tell you. It's the sheer frustration of giving everything he has and coming up short. Peter is still trying to come up with human solutions. He has no idea of the enormity of Jesus' mission. And now he's checkmated He can't pull it off. He's reached the end of himself. He's done all that he can, and it isn't enough. He is broken. And out of that brokenness, he breaks down and weeps. He's soon to find out, though, that God uses broken people. People who come to the end of themselves and find they can't do the very thing they've been trying so hard to do. Have you been there? If you have, you're in good company. Think about Abraham. He was promised descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. But Sarah was well past her childbearing years, and so he tries to do it himself tries to fulfill the promise God made to him through his servant Hagar, and only when Abraham reaches the end of himself does God fulfill the promise. Think about Moses, who spent 40 years learning to rule Egypt, followed by 40 years in exile, tending sheep. Moses had to come to the end of himself before God could use him. Think about a a man named Saul of Tarsus, full of zeal, but it was misguided zeal. He had to be broken on the road to Damascus. And what followed was 17 years of isolation before God called him to active duty. But then he would be in a position to be used greatly of God only after he was broken. God works through broken people. Alan Redpath put it this way, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. A.W. Tozer said, it is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly before he hurts him deeply think about what God did through this broken man named Abraham. He built a nation to reach the world. Think about what God did through this broken man named Moses. He set God's people free from slavery. Think about what God did through this broken man named Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, the apostle, who launched the missionary enterprise. God works through broken people, not proud ones, not ones who are full of themselves. He works through people who know they don't have what it takes, who have come to the end of themselves and who are finally ready to call out to God and say, I can't do it. Save me. Help me. And if you can, use me. Now think about Peter. Jesus told Peter this day would come. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells Peter in the upper room before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter was in for some sifting, but that he would come back from it. And when he did, he would have work to do. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift All of you, it's a second person plural. All of you, Satan wants to sift you all as wheat. But I have prayed for you, second person singular. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when, not if, but when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Peter would fail. But Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not. The rest of the story of Peter's turning back to Jesus comes in chapter 21 of John's gospel, and we'll look at that in a few weeks. But suffice it to say for now that there is a rest of the story for Peter, and there is a rest of the story for you and for me. We all come to the point where we know we're at the end of ourselves, that we've given it our best shot, and we've still come up short. And it's when we cry out to God that the rest of our story begins. It's how we come to faith. We try our own solutions in life, and we realize they can't satisfy. We try to save ourselves. We try to be good enough. We try to measure up, and we realize we can't. It's an important step, this coming to the end of ourselves, But when we realize we can't help ourselves, we find we can turn to the only one who can. Not only is it how we come to faith, it's how we live the Christian life as well. We all experience periodic breakings in life. And when we come to God with our brokenness and give our broken selves to Him, we find that He can and does use us in amazing ways. Maybe you're going through one of those times of brokenness right now. Your life isn't working out the way you hoped it would. You've come to the end of yourself. This would be an excellent time to call out to God for help. Jesus said, whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. He proved it with Peter. He'll do the same for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we realize that we quickly come to the end of ourselves, that we are incapable of doing the very thing we want to do, and it breaks us with frustration knowing we can't do it, and yet, Father, it brings us to you as well, and you're the one who can, and so we bring our brokenness to you, and we pray that out of that brokenness you would show us our need for you and help us to rely on you to do the thing in us that we can't do ourselves. Father, I just pray that if there's someone here this morning that needs to say, Lord Jesus, I, I can't measure up. I can't be good enough to earn heaven, but you paid the price for my sins so that I can have heaven as a free gift. And not only heaven, but a life that is full and abundant So I turn to you now and I ask, do for me the thing I can't do for myself. Save me. and Father, I pray for all of us that we would bring our brokenness to you, whatever our situation is, and find in you the one that can help us. Then grow us in our faith. Help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.